As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lot podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, do you remember our episode a few weeks ago with Mike Green? I do indeed. Fantastic episode. Yeah, this idea, and of course, for those who don't recall it or those uh, who maybe haven't listened to it, it the, the topic was what are the sort of distortions in the market uh, that are being caused by the rise of passive investing. People are just throwing money month after month, paycheck after paycheck into index funds. A lot of people think it's a really good trend, but there is more attention and more questions being raised by what does it really like mean for markets and market structure when so much money isn't going towards individual security selection? Right. There's this assumption that passive investing is actually good in many ways because uh, investors are paying lower fees. So over the long run, they make more money, but also in the sense that passive investing, because you're just in putting money into these big benchmarks that are reflective of the market as it is, uh, that you're not actually impacting the market at all. And only now are we starting to see some real uh, criticism of that thesis and also uh, some academic research where people are saying that actually passive investing and benchmark index construction can impact the market itself. Right. And of course, you know, passive investing, you mentioned the low fees. There is also a body of academic research on the side of passive investing, believers in efficient markets and so forth, who essentially say, look, the sum total of all active investors is just going to be the index itself, and you're unlikely to beat the market with your own stock selection. So why not just buy the market itself, and then you get the same return as everyone else, but at least you didn't pay the fees. Mike Green's argument when we talked to him was essentially it's creating all these distortions because the money just sort of goes to the index itself. That drives the index higher. And anyone who's trying to buy individual stocks, you know, can't possibly compete with a strategy that's just put it all on the index. Right. And there's this sort of uh, underlying theme that's running through all of this, which is what does passive investing actually imply about the functioning of the market? And I suppose 
the state of capitalism, right? Markets are supposed to be funneling money in an efficient way. And if passive investing is causing these sorts of distortions, where these overvalued companies just get more and more uh, overvalued, I guess, then is capitalism really working? Exactly right. So today we're going to explore this topic further because it's clearly something that's of growing interest. And we're going to talk with someone else who's done research on this exact question, also making the argument that the rise of passive is creating weird, anomalous, bubble type behaviors in uh, some stocks that's clearly different than the uh, old days. And so I think we're going to get more granular on what we're really seeing in the market that says something is weird about how the market is behaving specifically specifically because of the rise of passive. Hmm. Great. Let's go granular. All right. We're going to go granular. We're going to be talking today with uh, Vincent Deluard. He's the uh, director of global macro for INTL FC Stone, a major broker dealer. He recently came out with a report talking about the connection between passive investing and the sort of rise of these mega caps and the connection between the incredible performance of stocks like Apple and Microsoft and Alphabet and so on and what that has to do with passive investing. So, Vincent, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. First of all, before we get into the question of the distortionary impacts of passive investing, what is, I mean, some people debate what that even means, passive investing. And some people say, oh, it's a myth. Passive investing isn't even a thing or whatever it is, or that everyone is making some sort of active decision. But when we talk about this, how do you define the phenomenon that seems to define this, uh, this sort of age in investing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been in my work, I've just defined it as uh, investing in um market cap weighted indices. And I, I do realize that people use them for short-term trading uh, sure. as a replacement to other vehicle. And that at the end of the day, there is a, a human behind it. But my, my focus, um, I think, and, and that's what the, I think that the missing link is for, for a lot of people is to ask not so much where the money is going, but where is it coming from? Hmm. And I think that's what creates the distortion. So in the research note that Joe mentioned, uh, you subtitle it as Dumb Alpha, How to Be an Intelligent Investor in a Stupid Age, which I find very amusing, but maybe a lot of index investors uh, would find kind of insulting. Why do you think passive investing or index investing is dumb alpha? Walk us through your thought process here, because as you point out, actually, following the indices, putting money in the most uh, overvalued stocks would have paid off in, in recent times. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this was the um, the driver for, for the title is you look at last year, I think the S&P 500 index outperformed 85% of, of global stocks. Uh, so if you wanted to generate alpha, then you, you have this traditional uh, framework, right, where you have beta, which is, oh, I'm just buying exposure to the index and then alpha, I'm going to, you know, pick stocks and because I'm smart now, I'm going to beat the market. Well, that was flip on its head last year. Uh, the way to generate alpha was to own the index and pretty much anyone who did not own Apple or Microsoft in proportion to their weights in the index ended up underperforming regardless of how skillful you were with, uh, with your trading. I mean, I was recently talking to a, a friend who runs a hedge fund and had a good year, but underperformed the index because Apple was reclassified. Mm. And just that simple fact of reclassifying Apple mm. meant that 
a great year ended up being a bad year. And I think that's an experience that's very common for, for many investors last year. So you mentioned that the S&P 500 itself is essentially where the alpha is and that it beat the majority of stocks. Uh, 85% of the stocks underperformed. I was under the impression that historically most stocks did bad and that historically the vast majority of gains in any environment, whether it's passive or whatever, are often generated by a handful of stocks and that over time most stocks do underperform the index. How different is what you're seeing now with that level of outperformance of the index versus, say, 20 years ago or 40 years ago or long before just sort of buying the SPY ETF was a major thing that uh, investors did? Right. So what you're referring to, I think, is is Pareto's law. You know, you get 80% of your revenue from your top 20% customers or same thing with stock market returns. Uh, What's unique about last year, or maybe not unique, but at least rare, is that the larger stock in the index uh, massively outperformed. And you can go back, I mean, it's it's a very easy simulation to run. I mean, you can go back on the Dow, up, you know, up to the, the beginning of the 20th century. And one of the easiest way to have generated consistent alpha would just be avoid the larger stock in the index. Hmm. I mean, that's the um, Icarus curse, if you want. You know, once, once uh, Icarus runs too close to the sun, he falls down. Like, usually stocks that become the largest in the world either face increased competition, regulated scrutiny, uh, uh, just hubris because, you know, it's hard to grow, and usually they fall back. And of course, last year was the big exception with, you know, Apple up like probably on a total return basis close to 100%, and then Microsoft closely behind. So all you had to do last year to have a fantastic year is just own the largest two stocks in the world, which is usually not the way you make money. So can you walk us through the mechanics of what's actually happening here? Like, why are these, you know, big overvalued stocks like Microsoft, like Apple, why does money continue to flow into them? Right. And, and I think that's, that is the part where I think the, um, the, the criticism of passive is traditionally weak. Uh, and I think part of it comes from a, a bitter place of resentment. Like you have a, a lot of active managers that right. underperform and and every year they read the um, S&P uh, active versus passive reports that says, oh, 80% of the managers underperform and that number rises over time. And it's a, it's a very painful thing. So you have a, a lot of like resentment and, and, and they say, well, it's because, you know, the index fund just buy the larger stocks. And that's not exactly true. I mean, it's very easy if you're Vanguard or, or BlackRock to, to respond, well, no, if we market cap weight, we're not uh, overweighting anything. Right. We let, we, we let the active uh, segment of the market set price and we just bandwagon. We don't do price discovery. So any sort of um, mispricing is, is not coming from us. And that's a powerful argument, uh, one that I, I don't think we should take. The, the the correct argument is more, okay, passive does not create distortion, but can we think about where where the money coming into passive vehicle is coming from? And if this sector is structurally underweight, these mega caps, then shifting from them into market cap weighted will result in net buying of the mega cap stocks. So what do we see 
empirically in terms of the performance of uh, across the S&P 500 or other indices. So you and you made the point right in the beginning, which I think was key. It's not enough to say that the money is going into passive. It's that it's come what it's coming out of. And so what you said in that last answer is essentially the money is coming out of active managers. The active managers were probably underweight the very largest companies. And so therefore, there is this rotation of people putting money uh, into uh, funds that are are more heavily exposed to the largest companies. Do we see the reverse, though, where do we see uh, not just the upward pull on the biggest companies, but do we see drags on smaller companies uh, relative weakness of the lower end of the five, uh, 500 so that it's not just about the behavior of a few tech mega caps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you have, because generally it's, you know, you sell an asset to buy another one. So yeah. uh, it's not really new money. I mean, if anything, that's been one of the um, peculiarities of this cycle is how little new money has gone into the market. Mm. You know, the, the investor mostly starts staying on the sideline pretty much since, Really, since the the uh, VIX Armageddon in in, in two, January two thousand eighteen, you've seen steady outflows from equity funds, um, more 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 outflows from mutual funds than you had from ETFs on net selling, which is very unusual as as the market makes the top. So yeah. it's been indeed not new money, but shifting money, and and so the place where the money to to measure that effect, what I did is I looked at the top uh, two hundred largest mutual funds in the U.S. with um, a management fee of more than one percent, and I thought that would be a, a very good proxy for the uh, asset losing segment of the market. Yeah, uh, obviously. Uh, and I looked at the top twenty holdings, and I looked whether they had any of the I call it the Fang plus Fang plus Microsoft, right? Uh, Tesla and so forth. Like the, the big mega caps have been driving the rally, and what I found is that more than half of these uh, mutual funds do not have the FANG Plus in their top 10 holdings. Mm. Uh, and the vast majority of them uh, who own these stocks have them in a much smaller proportion than they were in the index. So to me, that is the source of this distortion. As these guys lose money and as that money flows into a market cap weighting index, uh, the way um, in terms of, of net flow, it means net selling of what these guys own, which is primarily value-oriented small-cap stocks, right. into large growth. And uh, to answer, finally answer your, your question, um, you certainly see that enormous valuation discrepancy that has opened between, between growth and value. Um, actually, it's higher today than it was back at the peak of 2000. If you look at the Fama French data that goes back all the way to the 20s, the, the slope of the market, meaning how... Um, how expensive your most decile is versus your cheapest decile has never been greater, hmm. which is consistent with what we've been seeing. Hmm. What do you say to to people who would argue that um, the price on something like an Apple or a Microsoft is justified by the amount of dividends or buybacks that they've been doing in the market? So if you can't get a massive growth in the share price, maybe you can get growth right. through the dividend, for instance. So that would be one argument for buying these things even at inflated levels. What do you say to that? Right. Um, well, uh, first of all, I, I wouldn't exactly define the dividend yields uh, as extremely high. Uh, I mean, you, you could probably have made that, that argument in uh, on December December 24, 2018, uh, mm. when, when Apple was you know trading at, a, um, I don't know, like 11, 12p, something like that. After last year, it, it becomes a lot harder. 
especially and again as as I explained, the, the money is coming from funds that have a value tilt to them. So if anything, they're probably selling stocks with a higher dividend yield to go into into lower dividend yield. The the buyback question is is also quite interesting, um, and I think it adds to this kind of supply and demand demand imbalance. If you look at last year, it's no surprise that the best performing stock were Apple and Microsoft, the two large cap techs with the largest buyback programs. So you have this rotation that result in kind of structural buying of these stocks, and then on top of that, you have a I mean, I, I don't have the exact number, but I think for Apple, it was close to five to six percent of the market cap that it bought back last year. And I mean, I hate to sound uh, to say it, but sometimes the the market goes up because there's more buyers than sellers. What about okay? So one of the things that you pointed out is that historically speaking, you could generate alpha simply as easily as avoiding the biggest companies in the index. And that, you know, there's just sort of like a natural, I guess, maybe the Icarus effect flying too close to the sun or some sort of natural diseconomies of scale where there's always so forth, so far you can go. What about the idea, though, that tech is unique? And the way it's unique is that the competitiveness of data-driven companies goes up as they get bigger. So if you're a Facebook and you have Instagram, you can serve a higher quality of ads with a billion users than a company that just has 100 million users because you have so much more data and your business runs better. And so what you could make the argument that these mega caps are better and more competitive and more in a position to grow organically, setting aside share price than big companies in the past because there are returns to scale. And that maybe you just can't compare a really large tech company that has the advantage of all this data versus, I don't know, a, a big steel company from 50 years ago. Yeah, that is a very Y2K argument, uh, which, you know, coincidentally, <laughs> the, the last time we saw uh, this this phenomenon was, you know, remember when, when Cisco in uh, yeah. in the fourth quarter of 1999, uh, you know, I think tripled or quadrupled in, in just three months. And I think it ended up at a close to 600 billion market cap. And and then that was the top of the market. Yeah. But the argument was exactly the same. It was a, the network effect, right? I right. mean, uh, as we enter in this um, dematerialized world, uh, we no longer have the, the you know, the, the, the law of diminishing return, which Right. Fundamental principle of economics no longer applies because you're dealing with with, with, with data instead of things. Yeah, and and the more people are on are on your network, the more valuable it becomes. Today, there is more of a big data AI right uh, t- uh, tweak to the argument, but it's essentially the same one. Um, I mean, I'll just point to the experience of of 2000. You know, it, it didn't work out all that well for Cisco, uh, and then for the companies for which I think there was indeed some sort of a natural monopoly, like. Uh, uh, Microsoft, eventually the regulators got caught on with it because it, if reality is the way you describe it, um, I think then we have a almost a social and political problem that, you know, wealth just accrues to the one that have the, the most powerful platform and, sure. and competition becomes impossible. Right, which is when you would expect regulatory pressure to come into play as well. And that's exactly what happened to Microsoft back in, you know, with the various antitrust probe in the uh, in both Europe and the U.S. in the late '90s. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. 
Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Uh, One of the really interesting things in your report is uh, you talk a little bit about demographics and different approaches to investing between baby boomers and millennials who are, you know, really just starting to accrue wealth in the stock market. Can you talk about how that plays into your thesis about, you know, money flowing into certain things, but also money coming out of certain things? Right. I mean... Overwhelmingly, um, you know, baby boomers are in, you know, they came of age, uh, in, you know, in, in really started saving in the 90s at the time when you had the, the Peter Lynch, the uh, the big, you know, uh, mutual fund managers, and they were happy to pay, you know, 1% management fee to to invest with a, an exceptional type. Uh, at the time, active managers actually did perform quite well. And anyway, returns were higher, so people were a lot less uh, cost sensitive. And as, as as I'm sure uh, everybody knows here, the, the median baby boomer is somewhere around 64, 65. As you head into retirement, you reduce your allocation to risky asset, increase that of bonds, which in many ways explains the, the flow paradox that I was um, highlighting before, where we see the market making new high, but money coming out of, of mutual funds. Uh, so uh, boomers are selling their holdings, <clears throat> which are primarily made of uh, high-fee, value-tilted, small-cap-tilted uh, mutual funds. And to the extent that millennials are building wealth, which, you know, as you all know, is not as fast as everyone would wish. Right. Um, that, um, that money is primarily invested via, you know, robo-advisor or even directly in, in low-cost ETF. And it's, a very, it's very hard to see this trend change um, in 2020, 2021. I, as much as like, a, and, you know, someone who believes in, in market-based allocation of capital and, and, and the value of price discovery, it's very hard to see this change in, in the near or even medium term. I want to go back real quickly to the question of uh, comparing mega caps today versus back in the day when it was a big steel company. So as of the day we're recording this, just for people's, uh, you know, knowledge. Uh, We're recording this a few weeks before it comes out. But the day before we recorded this, we got earnings from one of those mega caps, Alphabet, the core advertising business up 17%, the cloud business up 50%. I mean, whatever was the biggest company in 1960 or whatever, I don't know what it was, but probably some big industrial, right? Like they weren't growing like this, were they? Well, I mean, you had just incredible, like, (laughs) I just want to push back. I mean, these are like incredible numbers that someone would say, okay, forgetting passive, forgetting all of this. Like, it's just, it's, uh, they are incredible juggernauts that make more and more money every year. And um, uh, it's funny you should bring up the, the 60s and 70s because you, you actually had something very f- similar, which is the nifty 50s, True, right? Um, so at the time, it was your, your IBM, your Coca Cola, American Express, uh, McDonald's. Mm. Um, and I, I don't have, off the top of my head, data on, on how fast they grew, but yeah. it also seemed like you know they had these kind of new methods of management that had been you know invented after the war. They they were the first right. multinational. They had you know at some sort you know Europe was recovering, Asia. It, it seemed that they also had endless growth. And the argument that was made at the time 
you know, they were one decision stock. Don't worry about the valuation, they'll grow into it. Right. Which is exactly what we hear today about, you know, Google and the, and the other um, the other mega cap. The, the one thing I would point though on, on the, um, the earning side is, well, actually two things. Uh, one, watch for uh, margins and, and, and cogs, um, uh, actually no, salary costs. I mean, that's, right. that's an area that's been really uh, painfully growing much faster than earnings or revenues. And people kind of focus, oh, you know, 20, 30%, you know, top line revenue. Look at how much salary expenses are growing, especially stock-based compensation. And I think that's a, that's a huge uh, advantage that these companies have over traditional companies. It, you know, you look at a typical uh, salary package uh, at Google or Facebook or Amazon. First of all, it, it's very, very high. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, inter I was reading a piece that, I think it was in Bloomberg, interns at Facebook uh, start at $8,000 $8, a month. Entry-level jobs are probably more around 200 And then mid-level, you're looking at 450 500 but half of that is paid in stock. So you don't really feel the pinch, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you pay, if you pay your, um, your employees in stock or half of your comp in stock, hey, you still end up with the cash at the end, so you can do a buyback, you can you know, invest in the next big startup, you can- uh, And I guess if employees assume that the stock is gonna keep going up 20 to 50% a year, then that's, that's implicitly worth more than cash, even if it's the it, same award. And, and it, it, to some extent, it also adds to my, uh, my supply and demand uh, yeah argument before, and that's all, another peculiarity about a lot of these tech stocks is that the float is actually smaller than the market cap because, well, in many cases, you have a founder that has a significant stake. I mean, you can think of Amazon with uh, Bezos and, and McKinsey, and then you have employees who've also been given stocks over the year and sometimes been quite reluctant to sell. So if you have a, a base of investors that's not willing to sell the stock and you have index funds that are trying to buy in proportion to the market cap, that kind of add to that squeeze that we were describing earlier. So there's this sort of virtuous cycle at play, it sounds like, where if, as long as your share price is going up, and it probably is if you're one of these big successful companies like Apple, you can reduce your expenses by paying your employees with stock, and the assumption is it will keep going up. And you can also embark on big buyback or dividend programs because your shares are going up and your cost of funding in the debt market is probably pretty low as well. And all of that just combines again to flatter your bottom line and maybe increase the share price again. Uh, when does the cycle actually stop? Not just that virtuous cycle of flattering share prices, encouraging better share prices, but also the cycle of passive mm. money flowing into overvalued stuff. To tell you the truth, the, the passive rotation, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it will. I, I, <laughs> I mean, th there is always this hope, like every year among active managers, it's like, oh, well, you know, typical investment outlook from an active manager. Well, last year was bad, but it was because of this unique Brexit, uh, the Fed hiking rate, the right. Fed cutting rates, correlations <laughs> being high, correlations being low. But next year, because there's going to be that other event that I'm uniquely positioned to take advantage of, it will all be different. And and then, I mean, I, we've seen it for 20 years, so uh, I, I don't know. I mean, may, maybe you'd have to maybe have a, a black swan-like event, like like some sort of like, you know, massive panic, and then the ETF, the, you know, the ETF starts selling, and and and. But I, I really can't imagine the market going back to the structure that it is at twenty years ago. What what I will um, I, I will rebound on on what you said about the the virtuous cycle because I, I've done a bit of work on that. I looked at the um, 
uh, about 200 companies that are incorporated in the San Francisco Bay Area plus Silicon Valley. And then I, I created an index of these companies and I looked at their weighted average cost of equity, the cost of debt, their effective tax rate, and how much of their uh, compensation was going in, in the form of stock. And what I found was, you know, the cost of equity, effective cost of equity was very, very low because most of them don't pay dividends. Um, most of them don't have buybacks. So if they do have buybacks, it's to offset dilution. So the, on net, uh, it's very low. The cost of debt is extraordinarily low because either they have very little debt or that debt is really pushed far away. So they don't really need to, to service it at any point. Uh, the cost of employees is low. I mean, it's high in absolute number, but it's very low if you look at what is actually paid in cash. The taxes, of course, are non-existent. And then most of them, actually a majority of them, don't have earnings. So then if you start thinking about it that way, you think, okay, well, you know, if you were to run a business and you don't have to turn earnings, you don't have to pay dividends, you don't have to pay taxes, uh, you don't pay interest on your debt, or at least you can postpone it. And even better, you can pay, you only pay half of your employees' salaries. Yeah. I think it could be the competition too. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get into a little bit more soon about how you think investors should be positioned to sort of uh, prepare for the end of this and or take advantage of this. But before we do that, I'm curious, in your work, have you looked at non-S&P 500 indices to see if there's the same effect as a result of market cap weighting? Like if you look at, say, people putting... Um, money in the IWM, which mm -hmm. tracks the Russell 2000. Do you see a similar distortionary effect there where the larger companies within the small cap sector benefit disproportionately from some people, uh, from the existence of these vehicles? Right. What I've done is, you know how the, the S&P 500 index is not a... Um is not a truly market cap weighted index. I mean, it has a bunch of other requirements. Mm. The S&P 500 is not the largest 500 companies in the right, world, right? right, right. Uh, I think Tesla, I think for Tesla's example. Not a, exactly, yeah, yeah. because they have some requirement about, about earnings, I believe, and um, liquidity, which, which I'm sure, <laughs> I guess it, it should, yeah. that's another reason to buy uh, Tesla. Here you go. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay. But yes, I was looking at companies that were, um, uh, should have qualified based on their uh, market I cap. Gonna, this yes, is the other okay. question I was gonna ask. Like, S&P 500S companies that weren't in the S&P 500. Exactly. And it's about like 30 to 40 companies okay. that qualify in a market cap segment, but for whatever reason, they don't they don't match the other uh, rules set by the S&P committee. And yeah, indeed, they have underperformed hmm. massively because they're not attracting the same flow. I mean, if you're not in the S&P 500, you don't get the SPYVO flow. Right. Uh, so you're structurally hmm. less underbought. What are some of those other names? I mean, Tesla is the weird one, but are, what are some other companies that uh, if you remember them off the top of your head, that are like, should be almost fit the S&P 500, but they're not quite in there. Right. I think there's a, the, I forgot its, its name, but the big casino companies in there. Um, mm. and, and I think it's, it's a, an anomaly where the founder owns, that, 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 that's often the case. If the founder owns a bunch of the float, then the, the float requirement is not met. Okay, I'm going to do Joe's question then. Uh, it's the age of dumb alpha, and you think that the flows into passive probably aren't ending anytime soon. So what should investors actually do? Should we just be following the herd? I mean, you know, this is how like trillions of wealth were, were lost, right? I think it's stupid, but everybody's doing it, so I'm going to do it anyway, right? I mean, this is how you get the you know, you pay a lot of money for tulips or the, you know, the, the Dutch, uh, the South Sea company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it feels horrible to say that. I, I think eventually, 
I don't know when, I don't know how, but markets have a way of, of fixing things that are unsustainable. I mean, things that are unsustainable cannot last forever. Um, so, you know, I, I think over the long term, if what we're describing is indeed happening, what this means is that the expected return uh, on on these, you know, over-owned stock is going to fall and the expected return on the uh, kind of small cap value that are under-owned by the index crowd should, should be higher. They, and as a result, the, the return to investor should be higher. So in general, the, the, the idea would be to look for, uh, you know, kind of opportunities outside of the index. Uh, at the same time, I would caution that by saying, you know, you, you should be happy with basically dividend yield, traditional, um, you know, Ben Graham style analysis and not worry about underperforming the index by 30%. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it seems like in this environment, and it's kind of um, like insult to injury, because we're just, we're talking about all the money coming out of active and the this, the uh, pool of mutual funds that have greater than 1% fees and so forth. But it seems like in an environment like this, you really don't want to have the job of having to write a letter at the end of a quarter. So that like, if you're like a sort of normal individual investor, you can diversify, you could say, look, maybe I didn't, I wasn't overweight Apple and Amazon last year and I underperformed the S&P 500 a little bit in my uh, personal account, but it's fine because it was a great year and a bunch of stuff went up. But you know, the, the individual doesn't have to write a letter to some other uh, limited partner saying, explaining why they underperformed or, coming up with some excuse. So it kind of feels like that is a, um, I really wouldn't, like that is not a very desirable job in this environment to have to pick stocks um, and explain, you know, and either be in this situation where you have to really lean into the mega caps and risk blowing up when it all turns around or avoid the mega caps and underperform on the way up. Yeah, no, I mean, indeed, it's been a, a pretty terrible environment for active manager, research analysts. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, there's probably things you can do to mitigate uh, this. I mean, in the report, I, I was mentioning, uh, again, it's, it's a somewhat of an expensive strategy, but maybe one way to play this is to kind of have your, your traditional value-oriented, you know, um, stick by the book and hope that eventually things fall into place. And I, I own good company that I understand yeah. and I do my DCF work and all that good stuff that it's been completely useless for 10 years. And at the same time, to hedge against the risk of this kind of blow off top, uh, buy call options on the, on the big names. I mean, one worry that I have is that the, this rotation would actually accelerate, partly as, as people open up their uh, year-end statement in, in 2019. I think you know, a lot of the money that's invested in, in these um, high-fee mutual funds is kind of um, sticky money that has been then forever, right. you know, it, it got great years in the 90s. I, People don't really know how much they're paying. They, but then, like, if they realize, I mean, 2019 was so brutal. I mean, because basically, if you didn't have Apple or Microsoft, I mean, you're going to be up, like, you know, 5%, you know, a year when the market is up 35. Right. That kind of delta could be the kind of thing that, you know, yeah. huh. I'm, I'm giving up. And I, I worry that, and you, you could certainly see that in the first weeks of the year, when basically you had, um, I think Google was up like 10%, app, no, of, course, of course Tesla was yeah. <laughs> even even out of this world. Uh, but it could have been just people opening their and saying, okay, I dumped this guy, let me go in the index. And that rotation actually accelerating in some sort of a, of a feedback loop. Right, Tracer talked about the virtuous cycle, but this is the vicious cycle. Yes. 
for uh, active. <laughs> so I alluded to this in the intro, which is basically that there is a strain of thought that if passive investing is misallocating capital in some way, then it poses a giant question mark over um, the economy and the way capitalism works in general. What What's your view of that particular argument? Is there a particular area where you see passive investing, misallocating capital and um, impacting the economy in a negative way? Well, I, I think you see it anecdotally in you know some ETF-related distortions. Um, I think there was one like last week, it was a, um, a high dividend yield stock that was owned by a high dividend uh, ETF. I, I forgot the ticker right now, but, and then the, um, the, the, the stock kept getting cheaper or the dividend increased. And then it, it no longer met the market cap requirement of the ETF, so the, the fund had to dump it, and that resulted in a kind of a really large uh, down day for a stock that was actually doing well. And, and you can find many of these uh, uh, distortions. You, you see it also in the, the gold miner ETF, for example, the, uh, the junior gold miner ETF owning the senior gold miner ETF because there's not enough shares to buy. <laughs> um, so... You know, and you know these are anecdotes, but it, it tells you that this this starts to matter. In, in general, um, you know, the question is, what is the uh, the tipping point uh, for for the passive share? I mean, you can almost think as a almost like a Laffer curve. You know, like if you, if you tax people up to a certain point, then your revenue starts decreasing. I mean, yeah. as the passive share rise, then economic efficiency starts starts to to, to be suffering. Uh, the, the first data point you need for that is, okay, what is the actual passive share? Um, and, and it's a hard one to answer, going back to your first question, like what is passive? Uh, if you just go by, you know, adding um, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, I think it's about 20% of the market uh, for the, um, um, the average stock. Basically, the, the, third the three largest shareholders for most stocks are in that order, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street. It's probably even a little higher because you have a lot, these companies also offer um, index replications. They're not explicitly index funds, but they replicate the index for institutional clients. So you, mm. you don't see that money into the, the traded vehicle, but it is like, so my understanding is we're close to 40% in terms of the ownership of, uh, of the US equity market. And probably when it comes to trading and flows, which I think matters most because that's where price discovery is set, right? It's price is discovered by people trading with one another. So even though the ownership share is just 40%, if, you know, 90% of the trading at the end of the day is driven by, uh, by passive vehicles, you get to this potential problem that, that the price discovery mechanisms do not work. Well, on that, uh, on that cheery note of uh, price discovery mechanisms ceasing to work, uh, Vincent Dillard, thank you very much for joining us. It was great. Was thank great. you so much for having me. Thanks, great. Vincent. That was really good. Tracy, I really feel like this is just going to uh, be a bigger and bigger topic. One thing that has come up recently that we haven't even talked about since we've uh, explored the effect of uh, index funds and passive investing is all like the antitrust angle. And of course, that's becoming a bigger and bigger deal. This idea, as Vincent pointed out, like, okay, if every company is owned by that same basket of like three investors, more there's more and more scrutiny just on the question of like, what does it even mean for the companies to compete with each other anymore? Yeah, I think we need to get Matt Levine on again to talk about that particular angle. 
But I one know thing that's, that yeah, it's one of his big. That's one of his uh, recurring themes in his newsletter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but one of the things that really interests me from that conversation is the notion of how all of this is actually influencing the wider economy. And I keep thinking about deflation and, you know, the mystery of missing inflation of the past 10 years or so. And you can kind of see if markets are funneling money in an inefficient way or doing it in a way that means that the biggest players just keep getting bigger and those players have more and more pricing power yeah. on the market, more ability to dictate wages, that that might be one reason why, for instance, wages are staying so low. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's all kinds of sort of interesting ramifications. Hearing Vincent describe that feedback loop, the incredible mm. natural competitive advantages of the 200 companies or so headquartered in uh, Silicon Valley or the Bay Area. Tons of different avenues to explore about just the incredible amount of money that's accruing to a fairly uh, small group of players. There's one other thing that I really like about Vincent's research and the way he's approaching this topic, which is that he's looking at investor behavior and he's looking at it on a relative basis. So, of course, it's not enough to have, you know, 5% returns in a given year if someone else is up 10 percent yeah. right which i think is reflective of how most people actually think and view their portfolios and certainly you saw donald trump do this uh not too long ago where he was talking about the stock market's up and your portfolio is only 50 percent up yeah. what have you been doing wrong and i think that's also a point that's sort of missed in a lot of the analysis here yeah, no, I love that point about the sort of a sticker shock at the beginning of the year, because all anyone heard in 2019 is oh, such an amazing year for the stock mm. market, one of the most incredible ones on record. But there are a lot of investors who I don't think had such a great year. And essentially, like either, OK, if you own the SPY, you matched it. But, you know, if you like had any sort of normal diversified portfolio of equities, unless you happen to be like really long Apple and Microsoft, you're looking at your portfolio or you're looking at your manager and you're like, what are you what's wrong? And it could be the type of year where if, you know, as that dispersion between the biggest and the, the rest grows so big, as he points out, that could be a catalyst for even more acceleration from um, from active to passive. So, you know, kind of like we were saying, it's a it's a tough time, obviously, yeah. in active management. Sympathy for the fund managers. That's for sure. Yeah. I need to write another song. about. I should write a song about that. <laughs> Do it. I'll write uh, a song for, for our next live episode. Wait, is it going to be a Rolling Stones cover? No, I got to write a new I got to I got to write a new one. All I right. got to create something totally original. OK, fine. Okay, well, we look forward to that. Uh, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And be sure to follow Vincent on Twitter. He's at Vincent Deluard. Great follow there. Be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy. She's at Francesca Today. And for the whole family of Bloomberg podcasts, you can find them all under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.